First Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 29. The title of this message is A Growing Dependency. Let's look at the first, first two verses. It says, Then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are fighting against Kiliha, uh, and, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save the people of Keilah. That's how you pronounce it, I think. So, to start off this message, I really want us to entertain this question is this. Is our dependency on God increasing or decreasing? Is it growing or is it shrinking? In our Christian life, as we grow and we mature from babies in the Lord to kids in the Lord, to young men and women, to older men and women in maturity of our faith, in each season, our dependency upon God should increase and grow. Yet there's times where we feel like our dependency upon God and our grip on the Lord is actually we're losing grip and we're becoming weak. Yet God, during those times, has never lost his hand or his grip on us. See, in this passage, we see God sustaining David in several ways. First, through prayer. In verses 1 through 13, we see David praying four times and the Lord answering him four times. And then we see God sustaining David through a friend's encouragement and also the Lord preserving David from Saul attacking him. And so I want to remind you that last time we looked at David as he escaped and he was fleeing, he hid in a cave, the cave of Abdullam. And as he was in that cave, he was expressing his heart and he wrote many Psalms in that cave in dependence upon the Lord. And as he was in that cave, all of a sudden, these unique or weird guys started coming, surrounding him. Men that were in distress, in debt, and discontented in life. The outcasts of the world, you would say. People that we wouldn't choose to be a part of our team, but God was drawing them to David because he had called them to David's side to lift him up. And so now David has this kind of mini army of 400 surrounding him. And he also hid his family in the, uh, with the Moabites for a season. And all of a sudden, Saul gets word that the priests help David out to some extent, but not really know what, knowing what's going on. And he calls the priests in, King Saul, and Saul slaughters all 85 priests. And then he goes to the city of Nob and massacres the people. Men, women, children, infants. David gets word because Ahimelech's son, the priest's son, escapes fleeing to David, tells him what takes place, and David's heart breaks. He says, I have caused this. This is my fault. And so he tells him to stay with him. Now we pick up in verses 1 through 13 where David saves Keilah. In verse 1 it says, they told David. Someone is always telling David something or Saul something. People will come to Saul and be like, hey, dude, we saw David in this location. And he goes, trying to run after him. Other people are coming to David informing him. There's a lot of informants out there. 
David has his spies and Saul has his spies informing themselves, basically. And they tell David, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and they are robbing the threshing floor. Now, you can see on the map here, each number represents kind of a location that David went to in order. And Keilah is just located outside on the border, actually, of Judah's territory, about 12 miles away from the city of Gath. And this was a fortified town. It was eight miles northwest of Haran. And the Philistines came attacking this town, raiding it, stealing from the farmers grain and produce, which is both frustrating and life-threatening because the uh, farmers in Keilah did all the work and the Philistines took the goods. And if there was no grain, that would be, mean that there would be no bread. Can you imagine? I think all of us have experienced that before, where we did all the work and then someone steals our credit. Someone steals the, our kind of what we did. Maybe it's in a group project and all of a sudden you were assigned a group projects. How many of you guys hate group projects? Because sometimes you can't trust the other people that are working with you, right? And they don't put in the effort that they're going to get a grade for your hard work. See, the people of Keilah were farmers. And they were actually getting the harvest together. And then all of a sudden the Philistines, because they're the evil enemy, they say, hey, let's not work. We don't even have to have farmers. Let's just steal it from other people. So they go and attack this town, stealing their produce and their grain. And if they didn't have any grain, the people of Keilah, they didn't have anything to plant for the next season. So this was life-threatening and frustrating to these people. And David's informed about this. And what does David do? Look at verse 2. It says, Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. This literally means David paused and he prayed to determine the will of God. This is something we ought to do, all of us as believers. We ought to stop, pause, and pray. Invite God into the situation and say, Lord, what are your thoughts? What do you want me to do? He says, shall I go and attack the Philistines? Notice, this is David's desire. He wanted to help them because he had a great concern. After all, these people were part of the, uh, the Jewish tribe, the um, tribe of Judah. He had a desire to help them. Yet his desire was submitted to the Lord. He was willing, but he wanted to know what the will of God was. He didn't just rush in. He didn't want to rely on his own strength or his flesh. He wanted to depend upon God and rely upon the Lord. See, David found out about this problem. There was a need and then there was a desire. But just because there's a need and there's a desire to help doesn't mean we should go. It kind of almost sounds kind of strange, right? If someone needs help and we have a desire to help them, isn't that a good thing? But what if the Lord hasn't called you? to help that person. That's the difference. See, there's two things that we need to sometimes discern and distinguish between. And it's the need versus the calling. Just because there's a need doesn't mean I should go. It matters if the Lord wants me to go, the calling, if God is drawing me to that location. Let me illustrate it this way. I think Jesus' life paints the picture perfectly. There was this place in John 
uh, it was called the Pool of Bethesda. And it was this location where all these homeless people, guys and girls with withered arms, a broken foot, a broken hand, certain diseases, they were gathered around this whole entire pool. And they were waiting for the stirring of the water because they believed that this, when the stirring of the water happened, this angel came down and touched the water and the first one into the water got healed. Jesus went to this location and Jesus walked past several different men and women who were in need, but he wasn't called to them. And he only went to one man and healed this one man and then walked away. See, that's the difference between a need and a call. There's also another story where um, it says in Acts chapter 3 and 4 that this man was begging at the temple for like 30 years or something like that. That means Jesus also walked by this beggar. Jesus walked by him and did not touch him, did not heal him because he didn't feel called to. And it wasn't until later on that John and Peter would actually heal this guy. And it was an opportunity for the gospel to be spread. So it's important to understand the difference. We should help people in need, definitely. But we also need to go where the Lord is calling us because there's comfort in that call. I know I am called to junior high here, not just because you guys need God's word, not because you just need a teacher. No, because I know the Lord wants me here, whether you guys want me here or not. <laughs> I'm going to be here because God has called me here. And so David submits his desire unto the Lord. There's the need and there's the desire. See, it's interesting because actually this, is, this should be Saul, King Saul's job to help his own people out. He should be busy about protecting his own kingdom and the people. But Saul is so busy chasing down David that he's neglecting his responsibility as the king, as the leader. David asks the Lord, shall I go? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines. Save Keilah. See, we need to pause and pray, but we also need to listen. I think this is a huge part of prayer that we kind of leave out. We often tell God our concerns and what's going on, but then we move on. And we don't wait. We don't listen. We don't tune in our ears, our hearts to what He's going to speak to us. We don't quiet our hearts and our minds and wait for Him. Now, it's not going to be this audible voice and be like, Josh, do not drive in that direction. <laughs> it's not going to be like maps or Google when you're driving somewhere and it tells you each turn to go. But the Lord can put an impression upon your heart. He can give you a scripture. He's willing and wanting to speak. But we got to say, Lord, speak. Your servant is listening. And God responds and says, go and attack and safe. Look at verse 3. But David's men said to him, look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? David had just gotten these guys together, these 400 guys in the last chapter, but now they're resisting his leadership. 
David feels led to go, and they're like, dude, we're scared. These men were not David's mighty men yet. They were in the process of being refined and having their faith stirred up. See, faith and fear cannot coexist in our hearts. You either have faith or you have fear. These men here were possibly scared because if they were going to help the people of Keilah and fighting against the Philistines, what if Saul's army came from the other side? Then they'd be stuck between two armies and their lives would be threatened. So they had good reasons to be scared. But there's even greater reasons to trust the Lord. And we might be like David's mighty men, or we might say terrified men here. <laughs> They're scared. We might be scared of what's the next step in our lives, what God is calling us to, and the direction the Lord is leading us. But look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Then David inquired of the Lord once again, and the Lord answered him and said, Rise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. David inquired. That means he prayed again. Notice that David didn't condemn his men for their feelings or for being afraid. I bet you David sympathized with them. He says, hey, I, I've been in your situation. I've done things out of fear. He, he behaved like a crazy person because his life was being threatened. And it says he was afraid. He understands fear more than anybody. And you know what he does? He simply goes to the Lord again. I love that. Once again, he asks the Lord, what do you want me to do? These men are afraid. God, would you reassure us? And he does that. He says, rise and go. I will deliver. God reassures. I love that word reassure. I, didn't, I was reading a while back in Jeremiah chapter 12, I believe, and where it said God reassured um, Jeremiah. And the word reassurance literally means the removal of fear. I like that. Reassurance, the removal of fear. God knows how to remove the fear out of our lives through his word. And it's always through his word, through his promises. God confirms this twice. The Lord is faithful to do that, to remove our fears and to tell us things over and over. Now, I know all of you guys are perfect in this room. And you guys listen the very first time you were told, right? Yeah, he's shaking his head over here. Yeah, right. All of us need to be told multiple times, would you take out the trash, right? Take out the trash. And all of a sudden your parents yelling at you, take out the trash or I'll ground you. You're being told, do your homework. Hey, did you do your homework yet? Have you done your homework yet? Your teachers are constantly reminding you in public school and different things. We're constantly being told over and over and over. And God is so faithful to do that with us and patient. He tells them twice here. I love it. First Samuel chapter 3. God speaks to Samuel four times. Because sometimes we're stubborn and we don't want to listen, right? We, we, we're tuned into other things and we're not fully listening to what God has to say. God speaks yet again. Notice that in this verse, God gives them a command, go and attack. 
And now he gives them the promise of God's deliverance. He says, I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. What more could you want than that? You got a command from your uh, commanding chief, the Lord. And then also you have a promise. He says, I will deliver them. Now we got to move. You and I have the same exact thing. God has told us, he's commissioned us, go out into all the world and share the gospel. And he says, I will be with you. I will sustain you. I'll give you the words. We have the command and the promise. We ought to go when the Lord tells us to go. When the Lord tells us to stay, we ought to stay. They had more than enough to move forward. They had the assurance and the assistance of God. Notice verse 5. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. David and his men went down, and this was a brutal battle. Yet God helped them the whole time, and they struck them with a mighty blow. God was sustaining them. But I want you to notice something else that God does here. There's kind of three things. Number one, God kept his promise. Number two, God delivered the Philistines into their hands. And number three, God gave them a great amount of spoils, of livestock, of things that they needed. After all, they're hiding in caves, possibly living off of scraps. And now the Lord's sustaining them physically with food. Now, put yourself in the people of Keilah. Put, their, put your feet in their sandals because they didn't have shoes, <laughs> and their sandals. They've done all this hard work. All of their food's being taken away from them. They're running from the, their lives because the Philistines were attacking. But then David just came in and saved the day. Don't you think the people of Keilah would be so grateful? They're like, thank you so much for delivering us. Thank you. If it wasn't for you, we would have died. We would have perished. But you saved us. And you would think that there would be this joyful thankfulness. Yet not in the case of these people. Look at verse 6. Verses 6 through 12. Follow along with me. Now it happened when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. Now this is the high priest, or this is the priest's son that escaped. Verse 7, and Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. But But David knew that Saul was plotting evil against him. And he said to Abathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. And David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servants have heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will deliver 
you. A couple points I want to make here first is, what is an ephod? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen an ephod before in your life. I've never seen one. Never maybe even heard of that word. The priestly ephod contained a pouch that held two things called the Urim and the Thurum. They were sacred lots or dice, according to Exodus 28, verse 30. You might be thinking, like, what in the world? So the priests actually had a specific thing they would wear. And the high priest wore actually some stones on his chest. But this ephod actually had two stones. And it's possibly that they were like a white stone and a black stone. And this is how they would discern the will of God. They would pray and ask the Lord, and then the priest would reach into his pouch and pull out a stone. And if it was a white stone, God said yes. But if it was a black stone, it would be like God said no. Now, doesn't that sound pretty cool? How many of you guys would love an ephod? I want an ephod. I would love to know, like, all right, God, is this your will? No. All right, I'm not going. Is this your will? Yes, let's do this. It sounds like so easy, right? But this would only be for the priest. Only the priest could use it. Not anybody could use this. And I love this here. Two times David prays. He tells the priest to bring the ephod. He's trying to discern what the voice of God is. And two times, he does not seek human intelligence, but God's guidance, and God responds. Now, many of us that would want an ephod think almost like we look at David and his experience, be like, dude, that's so nice that he can pray four times and the Lord answers him instantly four times. But what about my life? I've prayed multiple times and it feels like God's never answered me. It seems like God doesn't even respond or even hear my prayers. Does David have more privilege than us? Is David more special in God's eyes? No. God shows no partiality. Not only that, you, I would argue, have more privilege and responsibility and resources than David did. How many of us, we read these stories in the Bible and we think, if I could only have been there to see that. Isaiah chapter 6, where he actually gets a vision of God himself. He says, how cool would that be? I will never forget what my Bible college professor said. He says, holding up the Bible, you and I have more of a revelation of God here in his words, in his word, than Elijah, not Elijah, Isaiah had in Isaiah 6. That's pretty powerful. In other words, you and I have more access to God than David did because Jesus has died on the cross and he has torn the veil in two, giving us direct access to the Father. That means we can go into the holies of holies where the very presence of God dwells and find grace in time of a need. In other words, it's like as if you would go to a concert. I went to a concert last uh, Sunday night for this band called Switchfoot. Has anybody heard of Switchfoot? One person? Oh my gosh, I feel old now. Um, anyways, this is an old Christian man, and it was great because they were doing like an old album, and it was a really good show. But imagine you went to a concert, and you got an all-access pass. 
That means you can go backstage. You can um, mingle with the singers and the drummers and all of that and hang out in the green room, like an all-access pass. That's what we have as believers. We have an all-access pass to the throne of grace. You and I have access. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. It's more than David had. David had the Holy Spirit come upon him, but David prayed later on. He says, God, don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Because under the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God's Spirit would come upon people and then be taken off. It was this on and off experience. But now because we're in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes upon us and stays inside of us, never to leave us. We have more than David did. We do. To discern the voice of God. So you might not have this magical dice to discern the voice of God, but you and I have all that we need. First, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have everything you need to live a godly life, basically. I wonder what David would say to us personally if he could be here at this moment and hear us complain, hear us complain about like not knowing God's voice. He'd probably say, dude, I've been in caves. You have a Bible. I didn't have a Bible. You have a church. I didn't have a church. David, I bet you can convince you that you have more than you realize. We can look at these stories in the Bible and think, oh man, I wish I was like David. Do you really want to be like David? You want to be on the run for your life? You want to be hiding from cave to cave and sleeping in gutters and not being able to go home? <laughs> You're saying, I'm good. I like my, my life, right? We have so much to be thankful for and so much to discern the voice of God. I want to point out a couple things in verses uh, 6 through 12. As Saul comes to hunt David down, he gathers men together. David asks the Lord, hey, is Saul coming? God says, yes. And he says, will the men of Keilah deliver us into his hands? God says, yes. God doesn't waste words. He says things to a point. He doesn't ramble. He says things and doesn't waste a single word. And not a single word in the Bible is wasted. Secondly, as you would think that pe these people would thank David, but Warren Wiersbe said, do not expect everyone you help to appreciate what you've done for them. That is a sad truth, but that is the reality. If you might go out of the way to help somebody, and you might pour out your heart, you might pour out your energy, you might pour out your time and do all of these things. And how does that person respond? By stabbing you in the back, by spreading rumors about you, by handing you over to the enemy. Guys, sometimes that's church life, unfortunately. And that's a lesson that sometimes we need to learn, not to depend upon just people in the church. They will hurt you. But how you respond to that is important. They might be brothers in the Lord. They might be sisters in the Lord. And we might have these expectations of like, dude, they should respond differently. Yet they're not, unfortunately. David doesn't shame them for that. 
After all, the third thing I want to point out here is the people of Keilah were probably afraid of what Saul might do to them. The last chapter ended in a massacre of a whole city because Saul was on the hunt for David. Maybe the people of Keilah were scared of that same outcome and they were willing to hand David over to save their own lives. So David leaves. Look at verse 13. So David and his men, about 600, rose and depart from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told uh, Saul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he halted the expedition. Notice, David's men grew, grew from 400 now to 600. More people keep getting added to David's army. And the Lord's just bringing them. And as soon as David leaves, the people of Keilah are actually safe from the Philistines and the threats of Saul himself as well. But now we get into verses 14 through 18. And I love this portion because Jonathan comes to encourage David. We haven't seen Jonathan since chapter 20, I believe, which we don't know how many years ago that was. It's maybe it's been five years or so in David's time. But David here now encounters Jonathan, and Jonathan comes and encourages him. Look at verses 14 through 18. Follow along with me. And David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in the forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for you, the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall stand next to you. Even my father knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went home, or went to his house. So David now goes from Keilah to the wilderness of Ziph, where you can see it on the map, number 11. And this town was about kind of 15 miles southwest of Keilah. And notice in verse 14 where it says, Saul sought him every day. Can you imagine running for your life every day, someone constantly after you. But notice the next two words, but God. Those verses, I love it, because God is intervening and working on his behalf. God did not allow David to fall into Saul's hands. Every time Saul is trying to search for him, God would step in and throw Saul off course, protecting David. So David's hiding out in the wilderness of Ziph, and Jonathan comes to him. In verse 16, Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. I love this. David's beloved friend, Jonathan, risks his life to visit him in the wilderness. That's true friendship. Risking your life for a friend to help them out. And not only that, this is a fantastic truth. Saul cannot find David and what does Saul's son Jonathan do? He just literally walks to David. Isn't that kind of ironic? 
Saul can't find him, but David has no problem finding his friend. The Lord brings Jonathan to David during a discouraging time. Notice that phrase. It's strange yet powerful. Strengthen his hand in God. This speaks of a personal, internal commitment and dependency upon God. David was literally losing his grip on the Lord. Losing his grip on God's promises. He was losing his grip on what the Lord wanted him to do. See, there are times where it seems like we're losing our grip on the Lord and His Word. And in the midst of trials, our strength seems to be depleted and it's failing underneath the pressure. I don't know if you guys have ever been there before. But where you're just spent, you're broken. You've got nothing else to give. For me, the last two weeks have been physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually draining. Even yesterday I was at the uh, men's gathering and I had to leave because I couldn't pay attention. My mind was just mush. And I was like, sitting in this chair is not going to do me any good. I, I went home because I was just had too much going on this week. David here needed to be strengthened. Take encouragement from this. David had a grip on God, yet his hands were getting weak. God had a tighter grip on David and would not let him go. When you feel like your grip on the Lord is losing, realize God's grip on you. He will never let you go. He says, those who come to me, I will by no means cast out. That's John chapter 6, verse 36 or 37. Also, it says in John chapter 10, Jesus says, hey, if they're in my Father's hand, who can snatch them out? <laughs> I don't know if you've ever played that game like with little kids. You put something in your hand, you like, try to steal it. Or play the game Hot Hands, right? And you like, move your hands and you like, play that game. You can't do that with God. <laughs> You're always going to lose. God, can, no one can take anything out of God's hands. He protects us. And we might be going through something discouraging, where we feel people like have betrayed us, the people of Keilah, we're going to turn David over. And that's discouraging to David because he's poured out his heart. He poured out his men, his energy and effort. And all they do in return is like, hey, they're going to hand you over. That's ministry right there. That's life. The more you love someone, the less you are loved, Paul says. Paul says, I poured out my love for you, but you guys don't love me in return. Same thing with God, actually. See, David was losing his grip. The word strengthen here means to grow, to make strong, prevail, to seize, or to keep hold of. I like how different translations actually put it. The NIV says, Jonathan helped him find strength in God. The NLT says, encouraged him to stay strong in his faith in God. See, Jonathan was an encourager. He came alongside David and he wanted to pump him up. Not just to get an emotional high, but to really build him up in the Lord. Jonathan had David's back and looked out for him. That's true friendship right there. And this is an older, wiser man. He was looking out for him. 
he basically took David's hand and had a hold of God's hand and bridged the gap. And he says, David, I want you to trust the Lord. He didn't say, hey, depend upon me. Jonathan took David's hand and placed it into God's hand. And that's what we need. We need to encourage each other to place their, each other's faith and trust and dependence upon the Lord and not each other. We're going to fail. Don't put your trust in me. I'll fail you. Straight up. But the Lord will not. We all need encouragement. Now, here's a question I want us to contemplate, and I want you guys' response. What are some ways you have received encouragement before? How have you been encouraged by other people? Anybody? Whether it's you playing a sport, or you doing an instrument, or in your schoolwork, whatever it may be, how have you received encouragement? Anybody? Is that too personal of a question? Has anybody, has it, have you guys ever received a compliment from a stranger? Raise your hand if you have. Isn't that a cool confidence boost? All of a sudden, someone who you don't know was paying attention to you, and they're like, hey, nice shirt. And you're like, oh, thanks, man. And you just like walk away. Or like, hey, cool glasses. I think that is a massive confidence booster and encouragement. It, makes, it kind of almost like makes your day, right? When a random stranger compliments you. I think that is cool. So compliments are ways we get encouraged, right? I, I remember one high school leader, he would always like give me a hug. He goes, man, dude, you smell good. I'm like, oh, thanks, good. I was like, it's a good compliment to be smelling good, right? You don't want to be smelling bad. <laughs> I think some ways we have received encouragement is by listening. Someone listening to us. And we just say, thank you for listening to me. Everyone's telling me their opinions and their thoughts, but no one's actually hearing my heart out. Maybe someone's prayed for you before and texted you, hey, I'm praying for you. To me, that's a huge encouragement. What about someone's presence? Simply someone's presence can be a huge encouragement. Imagine for you that play sports or maybe compete in um, theater and do different things like that. Imagine if no one came to your shows. No one came to your performance. No one came to your games. Wouldn't that be discouraging? But when you have one person there, that is encouraging. When your family's there cheering you on, whether they're crazy, weird cheering you on, they're like screaming their heads off and they're like, stop embarrassing mom and dad. Like, those things can be an encouragement. The presence of somebody is a huge encouragement. Even this Thursday at my uncle's funeral, as we were around the gravesite, it was hard. A lot of my family were crying. Just the thought of not seeing my uncle again and not gonna, he's not gonna be at Thanksgiving and different things. My dad just comes and simply puts his hand on my shoulder. And that's it. Simple actions can be encouraging. You don't have to say things sometimes. Maybe it's just putting your hand on someone's shoulder. Letting, you, letting them know that you're there for them. That's what David did here. 
or Jonathan did for David. Here's some practical ways we can encourage one another. I think we can encourage each other through gifts. I don't know about you guys. Maybe your love language is gifts and you love getting gifts. This happened in Ezra chapter 1 verse 6. And all who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, goods and livestock and precious things besides all that was willing to offer. That is the same exact word for strengthen their hands. They got encouraged. Now, are you saying we should give each other gold and silver? I'm not saying I'm going to give you gold or silver, but gifts. See, the Jewish people were held captive, and the Persian Empire finally kind of destroyed the Babylonian Empire. And through the Persian Empire, they said, you can go back to your land. And all of a sudden, all the other Jewish people that remained in that spot, they said, here, here's gold. Here's this. You're going to do the Lord's work. We're going to help you out. And they were encouraged through their giving. So if you like blessing other people, bless other people. Pay for someone's food next time. Pay for someone's Starbucks. Be like, hey, I'm going to cover your drink. And they're like, wait, what? It goes a long way. I think we can encourage people for the hope for the future. Isaiah chapter 35 35 verse 3 says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. I'm going to read some more of that verse because it's very powerful. In verse 4 it says, So those who are fearful hearted, be strong and do not fear. Behold, your God will come. In verse 5 it says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb, that means deaf, shall sing. For water shall burst forth from the wilderness and streams in the deserts. That's actually speaking of Jesus. And when he comes, there is going to be a transformation. We encourage each other by pointing each other to Jesus in the future and what he's done in the past for us and what he will do for us in the future. Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 7 says, But you, be strong and do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. You guys, your, the things that you do for Jesus will be rewarded. You might feel like no one's paying attention. Sometimes people aren't. But the Lord notices. He sees it. All the effort that you're making. Nothing goes unnoticed by the Lord. Through prayer, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 9 says, For they all were trying to make us afraid. That means the enemy saying, their hands shall be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah prays and says, God, would you strengthen us? And we're also strengthened through the promises of God. We see that in the next verse, verse 17. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. I shall be next to you. Even my father knows that. Sometimes friends know how to say things, right? and encourage you. Um, I was at the young adult retreat a couple weeks ago, and after I was done teaching, uh, my friend Byrne comes up to me, kind of gives me a hug. He goes, I just want to let you know, I can't stand you. I hate you because you're an excellent teacher. (laughs) And he just like walks off. And sometimes people just know how to say it in a good way. And I think we need to be encouragers. Jonathan was that for David. He says, I'm not going to be the next king. 
I know God wants you to be the next king, David. And what God wants is what God's going to get. As Christians, we don't live off of explanations. We live off the promises of God. And so in verse 18, they make a covenant together. And David goes into the woods and stays there. Jonathan goes to his home. This is the very last time Jonathan and David would see each other. They didn't know that. But Jonathan would go out to fight against the Philistines in chapter 30 and die at the hand of the Philistines. And David would find out and his heart would be ripped open inside. And he tears apart his clothes and he mourns and he weeps and he fasts for his friend Jonathan. Now I'm going to summarize the last part. Verses 19 through 29. It says that Saul's hunting David down. As David's in the wilderness of Ziph, the Ziphonites come to Saul and basically say, hey, we know where David's hiding. King Saul, would you come down and get him? In verse 20, Saul says, you are so blessed of the Lord that you have compassion on me. See, it's interesting because Saul is coding his language in Christian terms when God's not blessing Saul. God's not delivering David into his hands. He's actually manipulating people by making other people feel sorry for him. So Saul says, please go find out his hidden places where he's at, for he's a very crafty guy. That guy, David, he's crafty. He keeps slipping out of my hands. Find out all the places and we'll come and we'll help you out. Verse 24, so they arose and sent to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maud, or however you pronounce this, M-A-O-N, I don't know, and in the plains of uh, the south there. And so you can see that's where David went from Ziph down there, just a couple miles. And verse 25, then Saul and his men went to go seek him. And they told David, therefore, they went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness and Saul heard that he pursued David into the wilderness. Verse 26, Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But, verse 27, but a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry, come, the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore, Saul returned from the pursuit, pursuing David, and were against the Philistines. So they called the place the Rock of Escape. I love that phrase. As David is on one side and Saul's on the other side of this rock or this hill, they're running around it. David calls this place the Rock of Escape. And the Rock of Escape for us is Jesus Christ. He's the one that we ought to go to to escape from the pressures of this life, to escape the pain, to escape the hurt. If you try to go to any other rock, it's not going to satisfy. Only as we go to Jesus, that rock of escape will help us to escape our anxiety, our fear, our insecurity. And it'll bring peace. First Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 13 says, No temptation has overtaken 
you accept such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with temptation will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is faithful to make a way of escape, and that's what he does with David here. In verse 29, David went from there and dwelt in the stronghold of Engedi. Out of this experience from verses 14 through 29, Psalm 54 was written. And I love what verse 4 says. It says, Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. God is the one who will sustain us in whatever situation we are in. He will help us. He will provide. He will protect. He will bring those friends into our life where they can encourage and lift us up and strengthen our grip on God. So back to my original question. Is your dependency upon God growing or shrinking? Are we covering everything in prayer and asking the Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? Lord, what do you want me to do with this situation? I don't know. Are we being those friends like Jonathan, building up one another? Sometimes we're really good at tearing people down, but are we good at building others up? I want to challenge you. Try to compliment five people this week. Build other people up with your words. Be intentional in encouraging others. It goes a long way. And know, finally, that if you need to escape from the pressures that you're going through, run to Jesus. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is gentle and lowly. The Lord wants to restore you. He wants to refresh you. But we have to go to Him. And the invitation is always open 24-7. He will be there. But we ought to pray, we ought to pause, and we ought to listen. And allow Him in and receive His comfort and that encouragement.